0: for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Welcome to our online audience. Glad you guys are with us. And just real quick, if you're outside of the area, I mean nothing uh, by this, but I don't know why everybody doesn't live in Tampa. Um, Can we just give it up for the lightning for back-to-back? Um, Real quick, we're going to dive into a brand new series. I'm so so glad you're with us. We've talked about this already, but I just always want to just make sure we're so clear. Our heart in starting this was uh, for people who'd walk in and go, I'm not that religious, and we'd be able to say to you, we're not... That religious either, Um, but we do want to talk about Jesus, and that's kind of the epicenter of our church. So wherever you are today, wherever you're kind of investigating from, I'm so glad you're joining us. And so we're starting this series called uh, "The Secret to the Good Life," which a lot of times can be um, misinterpreted, misunderstood, or we have definitions all over the place. But everybody has an idea of what they want out of life, what they think is the good life, or some kind of vision about the future. And a lot of times. When you say good life, um, a lot of people immediately think more. You think the accumulation of stuff, you think of more experiences, you think of better vacations, you think of upgrades, you think of a bigger 401k, whatever. But generally, it's more, it's the accumulation of, and yet, like when you compare that to real life, it kind of breaks down. Because all of us, I bet, know people that have more stuff than us, and they're not happy. Well, like all of us know people that have had more experiences. Do I need this? Okay. Um, all of us uh, know people with more experience. hear me, and um, you look at their life and go, I, I, don't really, I don't really want their life. I mean, their vacations are a lot bougier, but nobody wants to be together. And then I bet the opposite is also true, where you know people who have less stuff, and you look at their life, and it's not perfect because nobody's life is perfect, but you look at their life and go, I kind of want some of that. They, they actually like being together. There's, there's some level of peace or happiness or contentment in their life. And this is actually what Jesus taught all throughout the New Testament is that the secret to the good life is not the accumulation of more. It's actually the stewardship of. In fact, here's a crazy thing. If you look in the New Testament, Jesus talked about our stuff and our resources and our money more than he talked about heaven. In fact, there was about 38 or so parables that Jesus taught. These little stories, you know what I'm talking about? A lot of times you don't understand them in the New Testament. Um, Jesus says something and then walks away and everybody's like, what did he say? But in 38 of those, 16 of them were about money or resources or our stuff because Jesus knew how important it was. In fact, Jesus talks about sex and money more than anything else in the New Testament. And I would argue that those two teachings are the most misinterpreted and ignored in all of the scripture. But Jesus is like, if you want better, if you want what I'm inviting you into, if you want how I would define the good life, then you need to pay attention in terms of how you manage your life and how you manage your stuff. Now, before you're like, dude, if you're about to talk about money in church, I'm out. So just hang on, okay? Because what you need to know is we're not taking up any offering at the end. This is not about you giving anything. What I want to do is help create a vision of what Jesus gives us, that your life will be better when you manage it the way Jesus has called you to manage it. Because here's the crazy thing about Jesus in the New Testament. As much as he talked about money, he never asked for it. Like one time he did this little you know, um, lesson where he asked for a coin and then he gives it back when he's done with the little, you know, little lesson that he had, but he never asked for it. But here's what Jesus knew and what Jesus taught all throughout the New Testament. That money can add meaning to your life, but it is not the meaning of life. Like, can it make it better? Yeah, it can. Um, can it add meaning? Absolutely it can. But it is not the meaning of life. And intuitively, I think all of us know this. It gets very little airplay at any funeral you've ever been to. Like nobody gets up and like, hey, can we just for a second uh, talk about this guy's portfolio? Like nobody ever does that. We intuitively know that money can add meaning it is not a means to an end. And in fact, when it becomes a means to an end, it is a terrible, a terrible outcome because it always leads to places ultimately that we don't want to go or don't want to end up. But here's the other thing when you use money as a means to an end it is what makes anything meaningful like here's the definition of meaning being a means to an end is what makes anything meaningful isn't that true like for anything to have meaning it's got to have purpose that's why you look at certain things and go i don't even know why like why like why did god create cats like what why are they here and <laughs> you know, i'm kidding i'm so full of crap because i have a cat now that i love And I hate it about myself because I spent most of my adult life making fun of people who like cats. But like like love bugs, why do we have them other than to destroy the paint on my car? Like for anything to be meaningful, it has to be a means to an end. That is the definition of purpose. That's the definition of anything being meaningful in life. And so here's what I would tell you on the front end of this couple week series, that you have got to figure out, you have got to figure out how to make your life a means to an end that is not you. Because Jesus over and over again said, if you wanna experience purpose, if you wanna experience contentment, at some level, even with all of the crap that happens and stuff's gonna hit the fan and it's gonna be hard, Jesus promised us that. But if you want peace, This is the means to finding peace. This is actually how the good life is defined. You have got to find a way to leverage your life for something that is bigger than you and leverage your life to become a means to an end. Because here's the thing. When you decide to be a means to an end, your money ultimately becomes a, a means to an end as well. All of your stuff ends up being leveraged for something bigger than yourself. This is what Jesus taught all throughout the New Testament. This guy, Luke, sat down. I love this guy. He was highly educated, a doctor. Um, If you're unsure about the scriptures, the Jesus thing, you should just study some of his writings. But he sat down to investigate, to interview eyewitnesses, and then to write a detailed account of Jesus' life and interactions. And he writes about this one day where Jesus talks about this subject, and he does it in the form of a parable. And again, a parable is basically like an untrue story used to illustrate something that's true. And in every parable, you know, somebody represents God and somebody represents you. So one day, Jesus, with all his guys, with Pharisees, with these people who are kind of following him around, and he tells this story in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Let me read it to you real quick. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs, meaning this dude had so much This guy had banked so much, he couldn't manage it all. He couldn't do all the deals that were necessary. He couldn't keep up with it. So he had to hire somebody to manage his wealth and his estate on his behalf. And so he hires this guy, and then one day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So basically... The rich guy, the boss, hires this guy to manage his entire estate and then gets word back the guy's not managing it well. In fact, he's maybe siphoning money off of the top. He's not made very good deals. This is not what he hired him to do. And so something's got to be done about it. There's some stuff that just seems shady. So verse 2, so the employer called him in and said, what is this I hear about you? Like, you're not repping me well. You're not managing me well. I've given you a lot of authority over my stuff. I want you to manage it well. And so into verse two, get your report in order, i.e. we're about to have an exit interview. I'm going to fire you. You have to find another job because this is not what I'm paying you to do because you are going to be fired. Verse three, so the manager thought to himself, and here's the key words in this parable, now what? Like I know it's about to end for me. I know it's about to go bad. I know I'm about to get you know, my pink slip. They're gonna take my key card. Like, I, I have to figure out where I'm gonna go next, what I'm gonna do next. Like, now what? My boss has fired me, and I don't have the strength to dig ditches. Because this is like, he's, I'm a cubicle, tuck my shirt into my khakis, pumpkin spice latte guy. I can't dig ditches. I'm an accountant. And so he's like, I'm too proud to beg. So what do I do? Like, I have a little bit of time and I have a little bit of opportunity, and I've gotta figure out where I'm gonna go next and what I'm going to do next. And so he gets an idea, verse four, I know what I'll do. I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation, which is pretty smart. Basically, this employer, his boss has a ton of debtors. Like, there's a lot of people who him money, owe him money because he's got a lot of money. So he calls these debtors in, and he gets the first one in, end of verse 5, and says, how much do you owe my, my boss? Verse 6. And the man replied, I owe 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill, and quickly, meaning, like, before anybody sees this, before anybody knows what I'm doing, like, I have a little bit of time here. i got to figure out what I'm going to do with my future. Quickly cut your bill from 800 to 400, And immediately when Jesus tells the story, because Jesus is the master storyteller, like you should just study Jesus' teachings all throughout the New Testament. He always gets everybody on the same page and he always unearths all of this emotion. So if you read the story or you hear Jesus' words for the first time, you think it's going one way and it always goes a different direction. And so everybody who's listening to Jesus has all of this emotion that rises up. This is like, okay, you're going to forgive our student loans. If you have student loans in the crowd, you're like, yes, do that. If you don't, you're like, you should just pay for that yourself. Everybody's listening to the narrative going, okay, if I owe money, I am maybe liking where this is going. If I don't owe money, then I'm ready for Jesus to lay down the hammer on this guy. And here's where it goes next, verse um, 7 and how much do you owe my employee? He calls the next guy in. And he asked the next man, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat. And so the guy or the manager says, here, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. And the implication is this guy just did this over and over and over and over again because there was a ton and ton of debtors. And every time he got done, cutting these guys' bills down. When they walked away, they're like, hey, by the way, you know, talking to the manager, if you ever need anything, you should give me a call. And he's like, you'll hear from me sooner than later (laughs) because I have something in mind. I'm going somewhere. I'm preparing some things for my future. And then I love this, verse eight. The rich man, pause. And so immediately, everybody who's in Jesus' crowd, who's listening to Jesus' story, and if you don't know the end of the story, you kind of think you know where it's going. Everybody who is listening to Jesus' story thinks that they know what's happening, what's gonna happen next. Everybody's holding their breath because Jesus has created the tension. He has their attention. Now the guy's coming back and they're thinking, okay, he already got fired. Now we're gonna start with some kind of you know, legal maneuvers, gonna take this guy to court. It's gonna get really, really bad. And the rich man, when he got back, into verse 8 had to admire i love this language the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd so rather than the guy getting back to go are you are you serious like, I, I'm gonna lawyer up, we're about to go to court. I cannot, instead, the rich guy walks back in the room and he's like, I gotta hand it to you. Fist bump, he laughs. Like, I don't know, I mean, it's not really ethical, but I've gotta give you credit for thinking about your future, for doing some stuff to prepare the way. Like, I, I wouldn't have done it, but you had a little bit of time and you had a little bit of opportunity. That was pretty shrewd, I gotta hand it to you. Like, that That was pretty good. And so end of verse eight, and, and. Everybody's confused who's listening to Jesus' story. Like nobody knows where he's going. And then Jesus pulls out of the parable this, this story, this untrue story used to illustrate something that's true, and he makes a very specific point, and his point is this, that in the kingdom of heaven, God views money, and God views wealth, and God views the stewardship of our resources different than we do. And Jesus' point... It's just this, and it is true that the children of this world, and here's basically what Jesus is saying, all those people that they don't really know who I am, Jesus would say, and all they do is live this life like this is all that there is. There's really no vision for anything beyond this life. There's no thought that anything goes beyond what they're experiencing right now. It's just about right now. It's about what you do right now. It's about YOLO. It is, I just need to, to make the most of my life in this moment. That, that's how the children of this world live their life, which it, it makes sense if you don't have a relationship with God. But then he contrasted. But it is true that children of this world are more shrewd, in many cases, more thoughtful, more forward thinking in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. And in this context, the children of light was the Jewish people, but it was bigger than that. The Jewish people who had been given a promise that God was going to do something through them and a Messiah was going to come. And Jesus is like, now I'm that guy. And then through that, he's going to offer salvation to the world. And he gave Israel these very specific promises that God would do something through them that would legitimately change the world. It would alter every generation and that they had this hope of a future. This hope that there is eternity. This hope that what they do now in the moment is going to last forever. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, even though you have a vision that this life is not all there is, that God is doing something, that what you do now matters forever. You live less shrewd. You live with less vision. You live less intentionally than people who are living like this is all that they have right now in this moment. Basically, the money manager was commended for taking full, full advantage of his limited time and his limited opportunity. And here's Jesus' point. It's easy to miss because Jesus sometimes is confusing. His point is this. You should do the same thing. You should look at your life. You should look at your opportunities. You should look at your stuff. You should look at your resources. You should look at your wealth. And you should begin to ask the question, how can I leverage this for something that is bigger than me? How can I leverage this for something that is bigger than this moment? How can I leverage this for something that will last me and go way beyond me? Jesus is like, those who would call themselves children of the light who are followers of Jesus, that's the question you should be asking. And then Jesus gets really specific, verse nine. You guys still with me? Online, you still with me? We're quiet at the nine. Here's the lesson. Use, meaning this is a means to an end. This is a tool. This is not an end in itself. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends then when your possessions are gone, and by the way, you'll be gone. Your stuff will be gone and you'll be gone. When your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Now, let me help you give some context here. And honestly, If you're a Jesus follower, you grew up in the church thing, you did Sunday school, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I get this. If you didn't, I just want to always acknowledge people on the outside. This is just weird. And the only reason I take this seriously is because of who said it, which was Jesus. And Jesus was a guy who lived on planet Earth, I believe, a perfect life. And then he died a death on the cross. Many of you know this story. And that wasn't just some arbitrary death. He died for the sins, the dysfunction, all of the stuff of the world, your stuff, my stuff, past, present, future dysfunction. I haven't even gotten to yet. All of it was taken on him on the cross. And then for three days, dude was dead. I mean, really dead. And then historically, I believe, walked out of a grave alive and resurrected himself. And the scripture says... That when we place our faith and trust, not in us, not in our ability to earn our way to God, not trusting the fact that because we did something we're too far gone. It's all about what God has done for us in Jesus. And when we simply say from a transfer of trust, I believe that Jesus lived, died, rose again. I'm trusting him for salvation, relationship, forgiveness. The scripture says, you're saved. You become a son and a daughter of God. I say all that to say this, and I've said it a thousand times. When somebody somehow brings themselves back from the dead, you should take everything they say seriously. The epicenter of the Christian movement is not the Bible. It is not Christians. It is not hypocrisy. It is not your bad church experience. It is not what happened to the dinosaur. There is one question. Did Jesus rise from the dead in history? And if he did, it changes everything. And you can come with a million questions and still be intellectually honest. And then you should go back and read every single one of Jesus' words from the mindset of this dude came back to life. I should listen closely. And so in all of this, Jesus' point is, there is something that we can do with our temporary stuff that makes an eternal difference. That specifically talking about the subject of your, your stuff, your money, that money is a means. It is a means to an end that is bigger than you, and it is bigger than this life. And come on, I just want you to lean into this for a second because we get so trapped in what is happening in the moment that I think so many Jesus followers miss what first century Jesus followers were well acquainted with. That what you do right now does not matter for salvation, but it does matter for impact for all of eternity. And I don't understand it, but I believe it because of who said it. And Jesus is going, there is a way that you can leverage your life and what you have right now to make a forever difference. And that's huge to me. It, it means this, is that we shouldn't view our stuff as like a percentage of it is God's. If Jesus is right, we should actually, we should actually view 100% of our stuff and 100% of our life as a stewardship of something really that is not ours and can be leveraged for all of eternity. So the question is really this, how can I leverage more of what I have to be a means to an end that is not me? How can you leverage more of what you have that is a means to an end that is not you? This is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's like, hey, you wanna be happy? Blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. In the Greek, blessed are literally means happy are. Happy are those who give rather than receive. And you're like, I don't know, I wanna try that out. No, 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 it's just true. Jesus is like, I wired you this way. The value of a life is determined by how much of it is given away. And literally the pathway to contentment and to peace and to fulfillment and to purpose and experiencing the good life that Jesus has for you is actually to give your life away is actually to leverage your stuff for the sake of other people around you. And it's counterintuitive, but it's just true. Here's the thing. I'm so thankful for the fact that I got this modeled from my parents at an early age. And I got it modeled across every spectrum. My parents, I would, I would say, gave their lives they gave their lives to building the church. They gave their lives to helping people. They, my dad continues to give his life to serving, to stewarding what God's given him. So I got to see this in every facet. I wasn't one of those church kids that grew up where I was incredibly hurt because my parents were one thing in a pew and then something else at home. My parents were the same both places. And I watched my parents give their lives. I watched them give their stuff when they didn't have a lot of stuff. And it impacted me tremendously when I got into relationship with Nicole. In fact, I would even, I, I remember because I knew kind of how much my parents made as I got a little older. And I would sneak into the room because, like, there was no internet or whatever. So you just, you gave a check every week. And I would just, like, sneak in. And I was like, I wonder how much they're giving. And every once in a while I'd be on their dresser and I would look. And I'm like, this is why we can't do anything ever. Like, this is the reason. <laughs> Freaking giving too much money away. But like the more I got older, the more it impacted me. And so I had this incredible advantage that when Nicole and I got together, we just decided that we would we would view our resources as a stewardship and that it wasn't ours. And we didn't do that because we were super spiritual. I wish I was. It, it took a long time before I, th- I think I really got why it was a good idea. I just did it because we should do it. And I watched my parents do it. And I just felt like Jesus probably was on to something. We should just follow that. And so at 18, working my first job, I would just give a little bit of that money away every time I got it. And it just, it's so easy when you don't really have much. But if you start the discipline early, the more you get, it just, it just becomes habit. Like, this is what we do. And then you start to see God work. And then you start to realize that God can do more with 85 and 90% than you can ever do with 100 It's just true. And so early on, we just decided that we were going to set a percentage, and we were going to live on that percentage of our income rather than allowing a lifestyle to dictate it. Because for most of us in America, and some of you are watching, listening outside, so this may be true in your context, but for a lot of us, we have a lifestyle that dictates everything that we do. So you find out at the end of the year how much you gave away, and it's a surprise. Like, oh, we did better than I thought, or that's all we gave away, or we actually spent 110% of our income this year. Like, a lot of times we figure out on the back end rather than deciding ahead of time, I'm going to steward my resources well, and I'm going to decide ahead of time that I'm going to live on a percentage of this, and I'm going to be generous on the front end, and I'm not going to allow the pool of culture or the pool of, of a lifestyle, move me in a direction that I don't wanna get to. And then I end up at the end of my life realizing I wasn't that generous. I didn't leverage much of my life for anything that was bigger than me. And here's what I've seen God do through this. And this is my heart for you. Is that over time, you do this long enough, you will watch God turn your stuff into stories. And it is the most powerful thing in the world. This something that and and again your your stuff is, is spiritual and it's it's from God and enjoying it and using it, all of those things are good. It can add meaning. My point is not that it does it. My point is just like is just that it cannot be the meaning, it cannot be the center of your pursuits of everything that you focus on to the point that you don't recognize that you have been placed here to leverage what you have for something bigger than you. But when you understand that, I'm telling you, your stuff starts to turn into stories and things that you would have used to buy IKEA furniture that was gonna break in three weeks all of a sudden becomes something that you leverage in the life of somebody else and their story goes with you for the rest of your life. The example that always comes to my mind was when we first started the church, and I didn't take a salary for the first couple years. If you've ever done a startup of anything, there's just no money, and we're just trying to get it to go, and a vision that eventually God's gonna do this, and um, my wife was teaching at the time, and I mean, we we were barely making it, And, um, and we still just decided we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, and God placed a girl into our life that had just started attending the church, and she was a single mom, and she was just a mess, I mean, just a mess, and she was in and out of drug addiction. And I'm telling this story, not that this is even wise, I'm just telling you what we did. And God just placed this girl on our heart and we couldn't do this for everybody, but this was just our do for one. And I remember time and time again where she was literally at the end of herself. Our church didn't have any money. We didn't really have any money, but like, okay, here's, here's, here's some money because you're not gonna make it. And the last thing we want you to have happen is be evicted with this little girl. I remember meeting her at coffee shops after she got busted again for another drug charge. And there was multiple moments, and again, like this is just our circumstance. But multiple moments where I'd sit there and go, "Is this even wise? I don't know if everything's, anything's ever going to change. But we're not doing it because she's going to change. We're we're doing it because for some reason God has placed her on our heart, and we're just going to invest in her." And we would do it over and over again. And it was so frustrating. And then one morning, she another I, I don't know what happened. She had binged or and. and Nicole called her and was like, "Hey, you you need to get yourself to church." And she's, "I, I can't, and I I'm a mess." And like, we know you're a mess, but like, you need other people, and you need to be here. And I'll never forget her showing up with tattered clothes, and just she hadn't done anything to herself for a while, and she's sitting in a seat and lifting up her hands, and tears are streaming down her face as she's worshiping. And we just kept tracking with her, kept tracking with her, kept tracking with her several times, going, "We're stupid, we're stupid, we're stupid." And then this is not the story, and I hate to honestly tell this because I hate telling stories with bows on the end, but like we watch God begin to do an incredible work in her life. And even in the midst of all this, here's the thing: you can be addicted and love Jesus at the same time. And she just kept, she just kept going, and Jesus kept pursuing her. And and now that girl is a teenager, and now she is serving in a local church, and she is healthy, and she is addiction-free for almost eight years, and it's incredible. (laughs) And I tell all of that to you to say this, like I, I could have bought some stuff with the money that we gave to her in that season. I have no idea where it would have been. We would have sold it at a garage sale. And yet that stuff turned into stories and it's hard to tell her story without getting emotional. And I will have that for the rest of my life. And I just want to talk to you real quick and then I'll finish this parable and we'll be done. For some of you, I just, I want to, I want to talk to you for a second because... You have joined us as a church, and for some of you specifically over the last couple years, you have leveraged what you have for the sake of something bigger than yourself. And you have bought into we're going to create an alternative to church as usual. And we are going to invite people like the girl that I just mentioned. And we're going to invite people who are agnostic. And we're going to invite people regardless of their sexual orientation or their background or what happened in the past. And we're going to create a place that is welcoming and accessible to every person imaginable. And then some of you stepped up to go, I'm going to foot the bill so that when people come in, we can just say we want something for you, not from you. Because we're generous and we want to reach this city with the message of Jesus. And about a year and a half ago, some of you sacrificed a ton because constantly we're running out of space pre-pandemic and we're gonna be moving to that place again as more and more people are coming back and you sacrificed to move into this facility, you sacrifice to renovate it, you sacrificed to make spaces for kids who can sit in circles and have the gospel anchored in their heart, you sacrificed so that people could show up and, and moms could drag their teenage kids who don't wanna be there and then we watch them at 15 place their faith and trust in Christ. Like because you sacrificed their story will be a part of your story for the rest of your life. When, when children are baptized and come up out of the water, when people are freed of addictions, when you watch individuals who will all, often email us to go, I was giving it one more shot and honestly, I was done and then I showed up and I experienced something different and my life has changed. Their story will be a part of your story for the rest of your life. I'm just telling you, there's moments where Nicole and I will watch things, we'll watch somebody get baptized or we'll get an email like we've had several times in the last month of people who show up and their email was, I was about to end my life and commit suicide and then I met Jesus and everything changed. There is no thing that is ever going to match that story. That There is no thing that's gonna have the emotional pull. There is no car that you're gonna lease. There's no vacation. And listen, if you got it, you should go after it. That's great. I'm just telling you, you should view all of your stuff as something to leverage that is bigger than you. And every time somebody comes in to go, I was never accepted before or because of my sexual orientation or my background or because of what they did to me or my mom was bumped out because of a divorce. And for the first time, I feel the acceptance and worth of Jesus. And those of you who fund and help make that happen, I'm telling you, There is nothing like turning your stuff into stories. And those stories, those moments, the scripture says, will last for all of eternity. God's doing something now that is forever. And so Jesus says this, verse 10, he isn't done. If you are faithful in little things, you're gonna be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibility. And if you are untrustworthy, verse 11, about worldly wealth, Who's gonna trust you with the true riches of heaven? And Jesus is just basically saying this, and I would just say this to you if you're like 18 or 21, you're like, none of this applies to me. I don't even have anything. I'm just telling you, if you can begin to think this way now, God will do something incredible in the decades of your life to come. And here's what you need to know. If you're in this place to go, man, I want God to use my life. I want my life to to amount for something bigger than me. I want to live with purpose. I want to have God move in a powerful way on my behalf. You just need to know this. Public success is always preceded by private sacrifice. Every single time. If you want God to use you in a significant way, it will require sacrifice that nobody else sees. And Jesus, in this moment, is going how you steward the little stuff right now in this moment is going to determine whether you are worthy of me giving you more. Not because of your worthiness as a person, but I want you to steward my stuff for a greater impact. Because wealth, Jesus would say, is a tool, but also it's a test to really determine what kingdom you are most devoted to. And so verse 12, Jesus says, and if you're not faithful with other people's things, you're like, what, this is my stuff. Jesus is like, no, it's not. Why should you be trusted with things of your own? And this is Jesus' point. Your money will still be here when you're gone. And you know what that means? By definition, you are not an owner. Because if you are going to give it up eventually, it means you never really owned it in the first place. And the moment you think you own it, come on, isn't this true? It owns you. The moment you think it's all you, is the moment that it owns you. And Jesus' point is, we are all managers, we are not owners, because you're gonna give it all up eventually anyway. Do not live like your stuff is a means to an end, or live like your stuff is an end in itself. It is a means to an end to leverage your life, leverage your stuff, leverage your resources for something that is bigger than you. Manage it well. And so if that's the case, if Jesus is right, the question is really this, who are you managing your life for? Who are you managing your stuff for? Who are you managing your resources and your money for? And I would just say this, if this is all just evolutionary theory and you just kinda got here by accident and and the, the scripture doesn't pit science and evolution against God, my point is just however God did it, if God is not behind why we're here, I don't really know how you answer that question. I don't know legitimately what you manage it for. But if, if however God did it, if God somehow created the heavens and the earth, and if God somehow created us as made in his image, the Imago day, and if God created us as stewards of this planet, and if God has given us a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity, it all makes perfect Sense. Manage it well because money is a means to an end. It is a tool. It is to be leveraged. It is to be used. And it's a test. And Jesus would say, What kingdom are you most devoted to? And if you are a follower of Jesus, and listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have to do anything that Jesus says. Church people need to stop gathering non-Jesus followers and then telling non-Jesus followers what to do. Paul had a very clear point about that in the New Testament. You are off the hook. You can live your life however you want. You can pick and choose the stuff that works for you. You can do that. My hope is that eventually you would become a follower of Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're on the hook. And Jesus would say, if you want your life to be used for something that is bigger than you, the place to start is answering this question. If being a means to an end is what gives life meaning, what end do you want your life to be a means? You just have to answer that question. What end do you want your life to be a means? What end do you want your life to be a means? Like seriously, have you ever thought of that? What do you want people to say at your funeral? because they are not gonna be rehearsing your portfolio. Nobody's bringing up your degrees. Nobody's gonna talk about any of your business ventures. I've been to so many funerals, I just guarantee you. What do you want to be said about your life? What do you want to leverage your life to do? listen, let me ask you this question. What breaks your heart? What moves you? Where do you go? I want to see God do this with my life. I want to see God do this through my little bit of time. I want to see God leverage me to make a difference because God has a plan and a destiny and will for your life, for our church. He wants to do something significant. And I would just say this with as much grace as I can muster. And I'm only talking to Jesus followers. Do not pray for what you won't pay for. Meaning there's uh, uh, the, the marginalized in our city and those that are hungry and single moms and those that are in this place where they're on the outside and my heart breaks for them and you're praying. That's amazing that you're praying. What are you doing in terms of giving and living in such a way that it makes a difference in your city? You have a heart for people that like maybe relatives that you know are far from God. They need a relationship with Jesus. They've experienced what some of you have experienced, which was I'm on the outside. God could never love me. And you are praying over and over and over again that God would do something in their heart. How are you investing to create churches that reach people like them? What are you doing? What are you leveraging? What are you giving that says, I want to actually invest in the areas that my heart breaks for. I wanna make a difference in my city. I wanna make a difference in my community. I wanna do something that is bigger than me because here's what I know that you don't want. A life that is characterized by accumulation, consumption, upgrades, fashion, a house full of stuff. All those things are great. It is not the meaning of life. And if you do not answer these questions of what end do I want my life to be a means, here's what I'll promise you. All of your appetites, meaning just the appetite for more stuff, it will eat up all of your resources. And in the end, it'll dictate everything that you do with your life. Because come on, this is a life poorly lived. He worked, he played golfed, he died. He died. That's not what you want your story to be. And if you do not decide ahead of time, your life will end up moving in the direction that culture pulls you and you will get to the end to go, what did I do? What did I even leverage for anything that was bigger than me? So I'm just gonna close with this final question. What end? I'm not even asking you to do anything. That's not my point today. I just wanna get you to think differently what end do you want your life to be a means? To what end do you want your life to be a means? To what end do you want your life to be a means? And I love it in the first century, those, those guys that were with Jesus that day, some of his followers, Peter, Andrew, James, John, like they had a lot of, a lot of stuff, man. They were all over the place. But eventually they got it right. And they followed Jesus with their whole heart and they gave their lives to him. And they lived this out to the point that they weren't just willing to give up their stuff, they gave up their life. And in Hebrews chapter 11, there's, it's the goat passage of the scripture, greatest of all time. And in there it lists all these people that were extraordinary individuals of faith. They were heroes. And, and generally those, those initial disciples were included in that of they gave everything. In fact, Hebrews 11 says this, I love this verse, it gets me every time in Hebrews 11, that these people, some were eaten by lions, some gave up their lives, some performed extraordinary miracles, some were exiled to islands, but they lived their lives for something that was bigger than themselves, and the author of Hebrews says that the world was not worthy of them. I love that. And then there was a whole other group of people that were listening to Jesus that day, Pharisees, religious leaders. And they listened to Jesus that day and they were in that crowd, besides the Peter, the Andrews, the James, the John, all those Pharisees were there. And Luke 16, 14 actually records this, that the Pharisees who dearly loved their money heard all of this and they scoffed at him. And do you know what their names were? Me either. To what end do you want your life to be a means? Would you stand with me if you're physically in the house? And would you pray with me right now? If you're online, you're in your car without closing your eyes. If you're in a coffee shop somewhere, just join me in this moment. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. And I understand that people who are listening to me right now that are hearing this message, they're coming from all kinds of backgrounds and they have, they have heard so much garbage with your name attached to it. And so I pray that you'd weed through some of that for me. You tear some of those barriers and obstacles away in this moment. And I pray that they would really hear from you because I, as weird as it sounds, I believe that your words are still living and powerful 2,000 years later, that when we... When we speak of your words, it changes stuff. The atmosphere in the room shifts. It does something that I can't explain. And hearts are changed and people are moved in ways that it goes beyond public speaking or a message. Scripture just defines it as the spirit of God in us. And so I just pray right now that you would do your thing in this moment. And I pray that among all of the things that we could get sidetracked on in this moment, that you would bring extraordinary clarity around this one question. I think it's the question that you want us to answer. To what end do I want my life to be a means? And for so many of us, and this breaks my heart, we don't really answer that question until it's too late. And so God, moving in us right now to view all of our life, everything that you've given us as a stewardship that is bigger than us. And we have been called to something individually. We are world changers. We are sons and daughters of God. We have been called to to change and remake and restore and renew communities and cities because we're followers of Jesus. We've been called to be churches that reaches people that nobody else is reaching. To move to the marginalized and the hurting and the disenfranchised and the turned away. And aggressively live out and communicate, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is offering. You are loved by God. God, help us to steward not just our life, but our stuff and our money and our resources to make that happen in our community and beyond. And God, help us to begin to get a vision for our life that is bigger than ourselves. And then in this moment, I want to speak and pray for directly those who are in this place where they have investigated, they have questioned, they have doubted. And I pray the first thing, Lord, for those who have felt condemned for doubting and questioning, that they would realize that that is a deeply spiritual thing. And that many times the road to Jesus is paved with tons of doubt and tons of skepticism and lots of questioning. But I pray that maybe in this moment, you would help them to realize that the question to answer is who is Jesus and what did he do? And that I believe historically, it is overwhelming. There is so much about the scriptures that is more unclear to me than ever before. But what is not unclear is that Jesus lived, he died and he walked out of a grave alive. And because of that, what he said is true, that we can have forgiveness in life. And this may be the moment where in their heart and their mind, they would make that transfer of trust and leave behind whatever they had from their past as meaningful as that was, that no class, no family line, no Bible study, no good works, none of that philanthropy can make them perfect and holy before God, they need you. And that in this moment, they would just make a transfer of trust to say, Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died on the cross for me, that you rose again not trusting me i'm trusting what you have done for me and i wasn't going to do this but i want to give you an opportunity right now a prayer doesn't save you but that declaration of faith and trust is what does and so if this is the moment for you where you'd go i'm crossing the line of faith to place my faith and trust in Jesus would you just pray this after me and it's your trust that saves you not this prayer but you can just pray jesus i believe that you're god i believe that you died on the cross for my sin i believe that you rose again And right now I'm trusting you to save me and to forgive me. And with nobody looking around, would you just lift up your hand if that was you today to say, for the first time I placed my faith and my trust in Jesus. Yeah. If you're online and in the house, I would love for you right now to to just text CENTERPOINT to 94000. We're gonna send you a link. We'd love to give you more information about this new journey. So wherever you are, you can do it anonymously. If you're online and this is you, CENTERPOINT to 94000. We wanna help you on this new journey. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing in this moment, saving, redeeming, reconciling people. Thank you for who you are in Jesus' name, amen. Would you give it up for those who made decisions today to trust Jesus?